Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6... Evolutionary.org hardcore podcast coming your way. Episode 176. Steve Swee and joining me from across the pond in the UK Iron Dead. The Mobster. How's that going, buddy? How you doing? Morning, morning. Hello, listeners, and don't forget the like, love, and adore. Guys and gals out there, we did Chris Dickerson. Episode 128. You can go back and listen to it. This one is episode 176, though. We're going to do another Chris Dickerson episode for, for several reasons. Number one, he's one of the greatest bodybuilders of all time. Yeah. Period. Number two, yep. yesterday was Martin Luther King Day, celebration of a great man. And Chris Dickerson broke barriers down when it 100%. came to race, sexual preference, and other things. And then the third thing... We're going to talk about, too, recently he has passed away, um, 82 years old, heart attack. It wasn't a situation where he died, you know, in his 40s like these other bodybuilders. He actually yeah. lived to 82, which is longer than the average male American lives. So he outlived the normal life. So he was able to do a lot of stuff in his career. So we're going to get into that. And it's going to be a really cool podcast. We're going to bring you a lot of information that you're not aware of when it comes to Chris Dickerson that I wasn't aware of and that the mobster wasn't aware of. And this is this is some pretty cool stuff that has come to light over the past of the past week or two since his death that we weren't aware of. So let's start off a little bit. Chris Dickerson, if you listen to the prior podcast, you know a lot about him, but his first name was actually Henry. And uh, he went by Chris. And he's also did modeling besides bodybuilding. But what he's known for overall is being the first black man to win Mr. America in 1970. We're going to get into that in a little bit. He was also the yep. first openly gay bodybuilder to win Mr. Olympia, as well as having to overcome his height and his age. Now, you know, we're going to get into that as well, because Frank Colombo was also his height, five foot five. But Frank Colombo actually beat him at Mr. Olympia back in 81. So we're going to get into that in a little bit. It's going to be a fun little debate. Mobster and I were kind of debating it in the pre-show, but we're going to get into that as well. So aside from breaking the color and sexual preference barrier, as I said, he is known as one of the greatest bodybuilders of all time, period. Um, You can make the argument he was a better bodybuilder than Arnold. He was a better bodybuilder than Frank Zane. He was a better bodybuilder than any of these guys from the 70s and early 80s. And the reason was he had a consistent career spanning the 60s, 70s, 80s, and he even came back in the 90s to do well um, at the Masters. Now, December 23, 2021, two days before Christmas, he passed away, 82 years old, and the, the reason for the death was heart failure. And at his peak, he was an extremely ricked, five foot five, five foot six, 190 pounds. Mobster, chime in on your thoughts so far. I'm just thinking something you just touched upon there, Steve. Um, and we've done, as you say, a show before, and I refreshed my memory. And then the, the, one of the things that came across that I was surprised about, I did not realize just how many competitions he'd done. You've got a list 
in the article that's going to be attached to this uh, podcast, I had to look, and without counting, it's over 40 competitions. And they are quite a spread in terms of the time scale. So that in itself, as you say, when you want to argue, I would probably say that Arnold and Franco, et cetera, were in their time better bodybuilders. But of his time, and specifically 80, 81 and 82, which we're going to get into, of course, he was, I think, actually probably the best builder, bodybuilder arguably at that time but the sheer number of competitions is one of the things that stood out for me it has to be without me looking 43 44 competitions now with one or two exceptions and i'm thinking obviously in, only in the last few years uh can we make the claim for ronnie common winning the most pro competitions and i believe dexter jackson and chris possibly one other bodybuilder right up there i think uh, milos might be right up there with the sheer number of competitions. But Chris would probably arguably be the first to hit that number because he started before when the other guys were still kids, still children, and still thinking of competing, teenagers and whatever else. So he was already doing this stuff. He was doing this stuff from from 60-something onwards. So, yes, the sheer number caught my eye, Steve. Back to you. Early childhood is very interesting. Born in 1939 in Montgomery, Alabama, his father was an executive for a trust company. His mother was a civil rights attorney. They divorced yeah. when he was young and he lived with his mother. So for him growing up, it was normal to break barriers. His mom was the first black female attorney in their state. That is incredible. She was also a good friend of Rosa Parks, who also broke barriers. And for our friends across the pond in UK, you may not know who Rosa Parks is, but Rosa Parks was the lady uh, because in those times, if you were black, you had to sit in the back of the bus yeah. and she refused to give up her seat. So it's kind of like first class when you go on an airplane, you know, the, you have a first class ticket, you sit up front, you sit in, you know, and you're quicker to come on, you're quicker to get off. And then the black people have to sit in the back. So this is how things were back then. Those young guys um, may not even be aware of that. It's a really crazy thing that used to happen. One of the things we had, and there's a natural, it's kind of like a joke, really, especially when I was a kid, it was just kind of a joke. But there used to be, you can actually find these photographs online, even here in the UK, Steve, and probably after 39, to be fair, but you used to define signs outside of bed seats and hotels, and it would say, no blacks, no Irish, no dogs. And so, you know, the racial and uh, national stereotyping for those particular places was. Perhaps we, we, we were perfectly fine with people sitting wherever the hell they liked on buses, but we still had our issues. Something else which you touched upon with regards to his mum, and I mentioned this in a pre-show last week when we were talking about today's podcast, I said she set not just that kind of example that you've already referred to, but she was one of the earlier versions of Afro-Caribbean, Afro-American mums where they keep their kids away from trouble. So not only was she set in this great example of being an attorney and, you know, being friends with someone who's breaking down racial barriers, but it's also difficult. And they're kind of bordering on middle class, if not quite middle class, where if you live in certain tough areas, it's very easy for your children to become involved in crime and drugs and guns and all that kind of stuff like we see in certain places in Los Angeles, for example. Mums that are able to keep their kids away from those influences, and especially when we're talking about 
here by the time he gets to a certain age, I'm going to say 59, bordering 1960, with civil uprisings, riots, and so on and so forth, and a lot of back and forth, and of course the stuff you already addressed in terms of the racial thing. For a young black man, one of uh, three triplets, to not get involved in basically the bullshit and crime and the aggravation and all the rest of that kind of stuff, super tough. So the respect for his mother is on it should be and is on another level, and that is a hell of an influence on a young black Chris Dickerson. Yeah, and you got to remember too, in those times, black people could not go to college in the South. Um, mm. They weren't allowed because college was only for whites, and really the poor weren't weren't able to go to college either. Um, so there was actually a civil rights push to allow black people to go to college. So the only place black people could go to to get education was black colleges, historic black colleges. And that was the place they had to go. So that's why today we still have historic black colleges in the United States. And then in the, in the 60s, they opened it up in the South through the Civil Rights Act, which forced colleges to admit blacks. And another thing too, this ties into sports as well, a lot of some some colleges in the South refused that refused to allow blacks to go to college. They fell behind in athletics. And what happened was the the last school to integrate was Texas A&M. And the reason that they integrated was because they were getting their balls beaten on, at football because the teams they were facing had blacks, whites whatever any any race and they were able to have yeah. superior talent to the schools that were just white only so they just got their balls beaten and that actually forced them to integrate was uh was sports so this ties into sports and bodybuilding how much sports and bodybuilding has helped us progress as a society this is a perfect example so um yeah and yeah, go ahead mom we're going to address a couple of things i mean one specifically which we'll get into when we talk about the AOU and the IFBB in a minute, Steve, would be, I've already said that there was elements and arguments for there being a, a, a degree of racism in the choices that were being made, and specifically the AAU in terms of them not wanting a black Mr. America. And we know that this happened, and, and there's history of the sport that recognises it, and of course those barriers got to come knocking down for the same reason you just stated. The other one, there was some issues the IFBB tended more towards if you were good, you won. And so being a much more international organization and bodybuilders specifically, the number of black bodybuilders that have won uh, the Mr. Olympia, uh, whether we're talking about Ronnie Coleman, Dexter Jackson, Chris Dickinson, and so on, uh, even Rami, if Rami is an Egyptian, there's, there's the racial barriers that go and disappear in sport, especially, but bodybuilders specifically, is enormous. There's a little bit of an argument, and I don't necessarily think that applies here with Chris, but there's a little bit of an argument in sports specifically, and I think we've addressed this in a previous podcast, that you, you tended towards needing to come from a, 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 I won't say a hardship or a poor background, but in order, you needed to be aspirational, and sports allowed that to happen. So, for example, it's very, very rare to see someone rich become a great American football or someone rich become uh, a great pro bodybuilder, for example. 
Whereas if you were poor or you were aspirational, if there was something that you felt that you needed to overcome. So again, with Chris, we can, we can make that argument that the time that he was born in of turmoil and changes, even with his background and possibly a protective mother, keeping him away from trouble or whatever else, it's still something for him to come out of that background and, and step forward and become the great bodybuilder that he was. And indeed, as you've just referred to, uh, other great athletes from that time. And I love the fact that sports, colleges, places that were stopping this thing happening had to step up and take these aspirational athletes from no matter where they come from. And for I mean, a, a good example, we think we've seen this with the uh, nutritional changes in China, a far more westernized diet. You're now starting to see Chinese basketball players uh, six foot, seven foot tall, and uh, they are, and you see them occasionally, Chinese-American, Asian-American, uh, playing in pro games in the States. So, you know, sports is the, the one thing that probably helps because it's on TV, because it's in your face, because it's in the papers, because you have a passion for it, that's helped bring down some of those barriers that's helped. And bodybuilding has to be included in that. And again, especially from this time, I've got books on the history of the sport here, I'm aware of some of the things that went on. I'm aware of some of the sudden decision-making. I know, for example, the influence of Bob Hoffman on some of these decisions that were being made. Um, and again, I think it also comes down to promoters, Steve. So there's an argument even for the promoters coming from those areas and naturally as white, rich people from those areas, perhaps not wanting to see changes and having that reflection in the decisions that were being made by the judges. So, you know, judges tend to be gym owners, judges tend to be other promoters. So there's an element of that. The IFBB and specifically bodybuilding very shortly after these times had to be one of the sports that kind of, we, we, we didn't have a color, we might have a color barrier outside, but we certainly didn't seem to have too much of a color barrier inside. And we should take a certain amount of pride for that. If a bodybuilder is great, he's a great bodybuilder. We don't go, he's a great black bodybuilder or Egyptian bodybuilder or French bodybuilder. We might do that if we're making an argument, but generally we don't even think about it. We just go, he's huge, he's freaky, he's vascular, he's got a massive chest, that's it. We don't go, he's got a massive chest for a black guy. So it's, I like the fact that the sport, especially of our time, Steve, is, is kind of colorblind. Back to you. So we're going to get into the bodybuilding aspect of it, but first we got to get into how he got into bodybuilding because I thought this was incredible. Yeah. Originally it was your sport, Mobster, over there in the UK, soccer. That was what he liked to do. He moved to New York mm -hmm. City. He studied at American Academy of Dramatic Arts. He loved being on stage, and this also played into bodybuilding. He loved entertaining yes. audiences. That paid off for him. That was one of the things that really motivated him on the bodybuilding stage. You have to be able to entertain an audience. You ever go to a regional bodybuilding competition, you get, you get better, you get higher up. If the, if the crowd's into your routine, if the crowd is into yes. you, they love yes. you and the judges are react yeah. to that. So that's part of bodybuilding for sure. He was a natural as an opera singer, great singer. His teacher mm -hmm. wanted him to make a career out of it. And they suggested he develop his chest to make it stronger. So that's when he started to weight train. And here's, 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 the, the, here's the cool thing. He went to California to visit family. And in California at the time, South California, they were into fitness like crazy. Southern California yes. was a fitness capital of the world. And it still is in many ways. You go to California, yeah. people are in great shape. You go to the beach, 
people have got six packs, women are in great shape and everything. It's not like they're uh, most of the United States. That's in, that's obese, right? And he saw a picture of Bill Pearl. Now, if you go to a Gold's Gym and you look at the wall, I don't know if they still have this at Gold's Gym. I haven't been to a Gold's Gym in like 10 years, but I used to train at Gold's Gym for about six years straight. And they'd have a wall, Pioneers of Bodybuilding. And Bill Pearl was one of the guys up there. And that's who he was. And he actually met Bill Pearl at his gym. And Bill Pearl ended up taking Dickerson under his wing because he was so impressed by his talent and attitude. And the rest is history. That's how he got into bodybuilding. So, Mobster, tell us a little bit about this. Yes, right. So, Bill Pearl. I have a claim to fame for both Chris Dickerson and Bill Pearl. I, I mentioned in last week's post-show breakdown that I, I used to attend something called the Oscar Heidenstam Foundation Dinners, basically an award dinner. You have something similar, uh, I believe, based around New York uh, for many, many years. I can't think of the fellow that organized the ones in the States, but it's much the same thing where you take people from the Iron Game, weightlifters, bodybuilders, people that have been involved in some way. So Joe Weider would have been invited. Arnold was invited. Unfortunately, neither one of those to attended, but we had... Bill Pearl at one dinner, and one of uh, Bill Pearl's things that he did is he brought every single guest there, got a uh, book from him uh, that he brought. So I think 150 of these books came and were handed out to the guests and, and, and the other honorees and so on and so forth. In fact, I had the pleasure of being honoured at one of those particular dinners myself. The other thing was, in terms of my other claim to fame, Chris Dickerson was at one of the other dinners and sang a small song, but he sang for the crowd. Uh, finally, of course, Bill Pearl. Bill Pearl's famous, is a fantastic bodybuilder. He was one of the people that's beaten Arnold back in the day. I think uh, Bill won the pro and Arnold won the amateur. So this was in the Mr. Universe. He was as influential as Arnold, if not specifically for the long time. But for example, was uh, the, they were doing a competition and Bill was posing one way and everybody else was posing the other. And he was able to determine and say to the judges, don't be difficult. So he was that kind of influence. But the main thing, and this, this is again with the black white thing for sure, is you've got a white bodybuilder, although I think um, Bill has uh, red Indian blood, and taken on a black bodybuilder, Chris, and yep, famous for having four o'clock and five o'clock in the morning workouts. And around that time, I think he was one of those things where he didn't have a big gym that was open to the public, although he has had gyms like that in the past, but it was kind of semi-private that time. And especially later on, for example, when uh, Chris won the Masters Olympia, training with Bill Pearl at five o'clock in the morning in order to win the biggest or one of the biggest competitions of the world. So to have Bill Pearl on your back as a coach, as a mentor, and in terms of being able to handle yourself as a professional, or having, as you mentioned earlier on, Steve, that stagecraft, that ability to captivate the audience, which is already in his background, Bill Pearl would have been a great teacher and someone to mentor and bring the best out of you in that particular way. So that in and of itself was a big deal, a, a very fortunate set of circumstances with Chris in order for him to become the great bodybuilder that he was. Back to you. And the interesting thing too, Mobster, I didn't mention it in the article that you guys are going to read at, at some point, and you may not know this either, but Bill Pearl was only nine years older than him. So it's not like he was like 20, 25 year difference. So that, I thought that was interesting too. So he basically took him under his wing. He was only nine years older. And the fact that Chris Dickerson was 
you know, engaged with something like that and open to it instead of just telling him, ah, screw off. You're, you're only, you know, you're a few years older than me. You don't know, you don't know more than me. He didn't have that mentality. He had the mentality was like, you've got nine years of more experience than me. I'm going to pick your brain as much yeah. as I can. So that's another thing that people have to do more of. They have to be more willing to listen because nobody wants to listen to their parents. You know, <laughs> nobody wants to listen to the older generation on anything, but experience does, does make a difference for sure. So yeah, that was really, really an interesting story. And I had to definitely include that. So another guy that's interesting is Burt Goodrich. And he's another pioneer of bodybuilding that you would see at Gold's Gym, um, the wall at Gold's Gym. And that crown, he was the first one in 1939 to be crowned Mr. Mr. America. And Mr. America is given to America's best built man. And throughout history, there have been most muscular title winners that have been non-white, but there's never been an overall Mr. America crown. And the reason for this, you guys got to remember, most of America, especially in those days, was white. So they figured, you know what, we can't have a minority traveling the country, being an ambassador to bodybuilding and representing bodybuilding to people who aren't, that don't look like him, that aren't the, still the, the, uh, the same skin color. That's how they thought back then. That's how they thought. You know, they, it was, skin color was so important. It was just so fucking weird the way people used to think. And people today, even some people think like that too. You know, and um, yeah, I want to jump in here, Steve. There's an, I've, one of the books on my list to buy by John D. Fair is about the Mr. America title. And I think what it was with the things that the factors that we've already talked about with regards to who was judging the competitions, the promoters, rich white guys, and so on and so forth. The Times, of course, the white guys, the black people, everybody's going to be influenced by the times and the history and the culture that they're born and brought up in. But I think John D. Fair, and a little bit of the synopsis of the book that I've seen, essentially what it was is in their minds to represent America and represent what the American ideal was, was this white muscular person. It didn't necessarily, the fact, of course, as we know, that America is so culturally diverse as to make your eyes water out. There's not... You know, if you argue that the majority of white, why do people still identify with being French? Why do they still have talk about their German backgrounds? Why do they still talk about their Scottish backgrounds? Why are the majority by re reputation of police in New York, for example, come from an Irish background and so on and so forth? So the reality is that America is culturally diverse. It's how you became America. It's how, you know, people traveled from arguably from different places all over the world to find and America to discover America and you know the whole business with the Red Indian things a completely different argument entirely but the majority of people in America have second or third generation have come across the ocean from all over the world so it's culturally diverse the problem I think for that time and this is the argument John makes is that the idea in their mind and it might even tie in with Captain America the cartoon figure the, 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 you're going to represent the culture of that time. And the culture of that time was that you were white, that you were rich, that you were powerful, and so on and so forth. And it was difficult for people to get their heads around the fact that, that a black person could be Mr. America. 
And of course, like you're saying, with all the other changes that are going on, it's very, very difficult. Even, even for myself, my background and the jobs that I've done in the past has included race, racial diverse training. Sometimes you think you're already doing the thing, so you don't need to sit there and have this bloody lecture. And sometimes it reminds you that your thinking is based on history, based on your parents' influences, based on the social interaction that you've had and so on. And if, for example, here in South Wales, there are very few black people, very few, it's, 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 quite, it's pretty much white. There's very little racial diversity. There's some, and it's quite well mixed in that particular way, but it's a much lower percentage, for example, say London, where I come from. So it's hard for you to break that, those barriers and it's hard for you to imagine, you know, the situation in the 1950s and the 1960s versus now. And, you know, it's, there's still barriers to be overcome. There's still stuff to be overcome. But for a lot of people, I think the idea that Mr. America could be black was a difficult thing for them to get the, the head around. And especially, as I said earlier on, arguably for the AAU over perhaps much lesser degree, the IFBB. But even then, there was some. So it's difficult for you and I, being the age that we are, Steve, and not of his generation, to see how difficult it would have been. We thought, well, what was the problem? Because we don't think like that anymore, and and we're more we're more culturally, socially, and racially aware, uh, you know. And we don't think in those particular ways. We have to sort of put our minds into that space. And our listeners are going to be younger than us, so it's going to be even more difficult. They they probably they got buddies on Instagram. They don't even think about what color they are. Just can they do the stuff that I like? Have they got the car that I want? That kind of thing. So it's it's really really difficult to imagine how complicated and hard it would have been for Chris and for bodybuilding for that matter, growing as it was. But yeah, the, the, for the longest time, for you being a great, I mean, as, as Steve said, why were the guys, they were winning. I mean, I think, I think one example, Steve, the, the athlete won every body part trophy, so best arms, best chest, best back, best legs, but didn't win the overall. How can he have every body part perfect? and win every trophy and not win the overall. It's because they couldn't get their head around it's like being a black or from a racial background winning. Or as you say, the most muscular. If you won the most muscular, you normally won the overall trophy. So there were black bodybuilders winning the most muscular and not winning the overall. And you're like, the audience was going crazy. Audience tend to obviously be made up of people supporting their favourite athletes. So if you were Cuban, you had Cuban buddies in the audience. If you were black, you had black buddies in the audience and so on. And the people started to complain. The judges are saying one thing and the audience is screaming something else. That happened at some of these competitions. And there's plenty of examples of that kind of stuff. You can read up and look in the history and some of the smaller documentaries and see this kind of stuff and hear these stories. And John D. Fair and Randy Roach and others have written about this, uh, where, where they describe these situations occurring. And the audience, I think one particular competition, chairs were thrown. So, yeah, so certainly those people that supported as fans of the game started to say, hey, this guy should have won. We don't care what color he is. He should have won. The judges were having a difficult time, but eventually we got past that. AAU took a little bit longer than the IFBB. Back to you. Yeah, and the, the skin color thing is so fucking stupid. The only difference, the reason Mobster has light skin, I have olive skin, Chris Dickerson had black skin, has to do yeah. with melanin in our skin. That's it. Yeah. And that yeah. has to do with our ancestors because our ancestors, Mobster's ancestors were north of the tropic of cancer yep. 
And Chris's and my ancestors were around the Tropic of Cancer. So I have more brown skin, olive skin. And Chris's ancestors were near the equator. So between the equator and Tropic of Capricorn, you're going to have really, really dark skin because you were exposed to so much skin, uh, um, to so much sun. So if I was to take Mobster and put him in a room and shove him full of melanotan, the peptide, I could turn his skin dark the same way just by I giving actually, him I, more of this. I actually do. In my family, I'm actually the darkest. And I do sound very well, Steve, but I take your point. I mean, I've studied a little bit of this stuff again, and it's what you're saying. It, I've, I've, I've had arguments with buddies back in the day, and I don't, don't want to bang this drum too much because we want to talk about Chris a little bit more. But quite it's exactly what you're saying. Uh, in terms of um, background, and there's plenty of this whole eugenics and whatever else, right? So it goes, oh, if you come from certain particular places, it nature or nurture? If certain things are available to you, can, can a black person have a great education? Yes. You know, uh, uh, Asians, for example, are more likely to be focused. I'm specifically thinking of, for example, people from Singapore and Hong Kong and so on and so forth, more likely to push their children into higher education. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're more intelligent. It just means that mum and dad have more aspirations for their child to do well in life and get degrees and have a better paid job. But then that's been the thing in America for the longest time. It's, it's, it's a huge thing for the middle class and their aspirational classes here in the UK. That's regardless of where you come from. So the longer we've been around, the more of these things we see, the more we realise it doesn't fucking matter where you come from. It doesn't fucking matter what colour your skin is. If you've got the balls to go out and make something of yourself, and bodybuilding especially proves this to us, if you put your head on and you go, I'm going to be the best bodybuilder, I'm going to have a great chest, I'm going to build up the best bench press or have a great squat or whatever else, we don't care two fucks what color you are. Some of the best benchers in the world are black. Some of the best squatter in the world, raw squatter, uh, no belt, drug-free, black. Uh, one, of the, one of the strength athletes that I've, I've been around is Mark Henry, black, African-American. If you talk about bodybuilders, Ronnie Coleman, what a fucking monster of a bodybuilder. And I said it in the nicest way, the most positive way, black. And this is not, and represented in his community in terms of being a police officer. So there's, the, we, especially with us lifting weights, Steve, especially with us training, but life in general for us, and especially for yours, yours and my age groups, I'm a little bit older than you are. We've come from some elements of that and we see that there's no need for it. And bodybuilding, weightlifting, strength training, all the things that are involved in the sports that we do this podcast for teaches us we don't give two fucks what colour you are, what background, what your education levels is. We don't care what part of the world you come from. I don't care if you, you, you were born in the Saharan desert. Come here, train like a motherfucker, get the size of a fucking house, be an inspiration, be a motivation, boom, that's it. The rest is bullshit. We don't care. So that, that I like about the fact that we do this stuff. And it teaches me that, you know, the rest of it is bullshit. If this guy comes to the gym and trains his ass off, if he turns up on time as a training partner, I don't give a fuck. Why, why should I care what your racial background is? Make sure you turn up on time. Push me in the gym. I'll push you in the gym. We'll get to be as best we possibly can. Why should we care about this thing? But that wasn't Chris's thing. Chris didn't have that. And not only that, as you say, Steve, and without banging the racism drum too much, he had a, I mean, not only did he have that to deal with, but as you said already, short, 
which is never necessarily the best thing in terms of sporting activities, but also gay. I mean, and again, this is something that we and Steve discussed in, in the pre-show last week and this week, or the post-show last week, pre-show this week. In terms of Chris having stuff to overcome and in terms of him being a positive role model, especially for the time that he was born and brought up in, he had it arguably against him. And the dignity that he brought with those issues as they were at the time, and they're not issues now, but they was at the time, to overcome and the dignity that he brought to himself as an athlete and to the sport as a whole in order to become the best bodybuilder vis-a-vis -vis winning the Olympia in 1982 and all the other competitions that he kicks ass in is enormous. And we should recognize this podcast, guys, is what we, we're about. We're recognizing it for that. We're marking the fact that he's passed by saying, look at the influence, look what he's had to overcome, look what he's done, and he was still a great bodybuilder. He could have easily been ground down and easily struggled and stressed against these particular things, easily been typical of the time in terms of not being able to deal with it and keeping it hidden and, and not trying to be the best that he could possibly be, but he didn't. And the fact that he did it in a quiet, understated, and dignified kind of way, Steve, is what makes you, you go, you, 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 you give him kudos. You say, what a fella, what a broke, what a bodybuilder to be able to, for example, and we're going to get into it in a minute, the 1981 Olympia, for example, and you go, right, and he still come back. He didn't cook off, he didn't complain, he didn't whatever, and still came back to be a proper gentleman when it comes to this stuff and to not moan and bitch and whatever else and not you know yeah, throw, throw yeah his patience yeah. his patience is incredible so yeah. let's let me wow. i'm gonna have you get into his the mr olympia oh. what happened in 80 81 82 but first yeah. Yeah. this is this is why this is how you break barriers in life guys with yes. everything and you may be in this situation where you i can remember the first real job i had I was discriminated against due to my age. I was a lot younger than the other guys. I didn't have as much experience as the other guys. I felt like I wasn't being treated fairly, but I forced the company I was working for to promote me. And a year later, I was ahead of those guys who even had years of experience on me. I was ahead yeah. of them. And they had even more education than me and all that stuff. And this is what Chris Dickerson did in 1970. He was so much better than everyone else that they yep. had to give him the Mr. Olymp America, because if they didn't give him Mr. Olympia and they didn't crown him, they would make themselves out, look, look really, really bad. They would basically make their award worth shit. And everyone yes. would know how crappy that Mr. America award was and how useless it was. So they were forced to give him the crown of Mr. America. And he opened the door as being the first blank winner of that for other guys year and a few years later, Tony Pearson won it. Other guys have won it. So he was the, he smashed that door open. And yeah. here's the quote says Dickerson, what brought class and dignity and culture to bodybuilding. That was yes. a quote, direct quote uh, from people at that time. And uh, that's, that's basically what happened. So in life guys, you're going to have to deal with this. Maybe you grew up poor. Maybe you grew up, you didn't have as much education as your peers. You didn't have as much 
Um, you may have a, a, a handicap, maybe you have a dyslexia, maybe you have something where, you know, you start a job and everyone else there has five years experience and you're new at it and you feel like, wow, I need to improve. But, you know, if you really push yourself and you force them to, to, to give you a promotion, you force them to keep you, then good things will happen. So this is what Chris did and he's a definite inspiration. So Momster, I... I'm curious because um, I want to hear your perspective on what happened at 80, 81, 82. Why don't you tell the listeners that story? Because this is a really interesting one. Right. So we know anybody that sort of followed the history of the sport, guys, know of the drama and the aggravation and, and, and uh, the decisions that were made. Arnold essentially decided to come out of retirement, supposedly filming a documentary with, I think he had the uh, CBS one of the big TV companies following him and everybody's asking him, are you going to do it? Are you going to do it? Are you do it? And he says, no, no, no. And then Indian decides he's going to do it. And a less, a subpar, a not, a, I mean, basically 73 was probably the best Arnold ever looked. 75 when he retired, which is when Pump and I was filmed pretty damn good. 1980, not quite as good. And so the argument then becomes that both in 1980, and especially in 81, when Franco Colombo, his buddy, is kind of arguable. And I've seen historical arguments and investigations where both of them had friends amongst the judges who should not have been judging their mates, their friends. Some of them even have business arrangements with these judges, at both competitions. Uh, Franco, for example, prior to that, and Chris Dickerson was one of the people I believe that was told this, where I think Robbie Robinson was ringing people up and saying, don't do the Mr. Olympia this year. Why shouldn't I do the Mr. Olympia this year? Franco's going to win it. And it was kind of laughed off by those people that didn't know what was going on or didn't know that this was going to happen or that was going to happen. And then they turn up in probably their best condition. And arguably, for example, you could make an argument for Frank Sane or Chris Dickerson winning in 1980, and you wouldn't be far off the mark. But, but Arnold, by sheer force of personality, no. And when, when, for example, Joe Weider getting up and leaving the auditorium, and it was held, I believe, in Sydney that year, saying I want no part of this, and this was one of like Arnold's best buddies in the whole world, then that gives you an example that the guy that's in charge of bodybuilding, if not the IHBB with his brother Ben, uh, doesn't want a part of the competition and addition. he didn't want to be in the room when the decision was made. And again, chairs being thrown and whatever else. And then, then to have it again in 1981, where people are saying six months before the competition, Franco's competing and Franco's gonna win. And Franco was still recovering, from the, the fractured leg that he got in the World's Strongest Man competition that he'd taken part in. And his legs were never that good. His upper body was on another level, it has to be said for a short man, that split in the chest and fantastic back that Franco 100% had. But his legs were never that good before the injury and post-injury, never quite a lot. When you've got one good leg and one bare leg and you're supposed to be winning the Mr. Olympia. And again, Chris Dickerson standing there dignified, taking his shit taking this decision and really like what the fuck and I, I'm a fan of bodybuilding a fan of bodybuilding history whatever else I remember every single magazine at the time every editorial was like what happened even if they were fans I mean Bob Kennedy for example was a huge fan and had a great relationship with Arnold Schwarzenegger he did Arnold Schwarzenegger specials with Muscle Mag International and again you're like I love Arnold, but what happened? I love Franco, but what happened? 
and Chris Dickerson, both those years, there could be an argument made for him winning either of those competitions, certainly top one, top two, top three. So, again, standing there, I mean, we, we know about the Mike Mensah stuff going on backstage at the AE and, you know, uh, Arnold psyching out other athletes and so on and so forth because he was very, very good at that sort of thing, getting inside your headspace, be a great body, but equally bringing a great body on the day. In 1980, arguably, getting in your headspace, but not bringing the best and, you know, making last-minute decisions to enter when you're supposed to have entered a month in advance of the competition. There's so much that went on with the 80, if to a lesser degree with the 81, and Chris Dickerson is dealing with this. And what follows that, of course, is there's a lot of guys threatening to boycott the Mr. Olympia. That happened between the 80 and 81. So when the 81 competitions happen, yet more bodybuilders are like, fuck this. What, the f- what is the fucking point? And me competing in a competition like this, supposedly the best competition in bodybuilding, one up until that point, no one's really kicked off about. No one's had these great dramas. Yes, there's always going to be fans that want a decision to go one way or the other, but not to the point of it kind of like insulting and rubbing your face in and what the fuck is happening. So, yeah, top bodybuilders go, do you know what? Fuck this, I'm not competing. I'm not competing this year. I'm waiting to this year. Give me new judges. Sort this shit out. If we're ever going to have a competition like this again, I'm not doing it with that person in charge. I'm not doing it with that person competing because this is just ridiculous. So if I want a chance for me to spend 16, 20, 30 weeks sometimes, Steve, dieting and training and, you know, pissing my missus off and not seeing the kids enough and things are aching and to get down to super low body fats and be feel like beating up dog shit, but look absolutely amazing and the decisions being taken away from me, why the fuck should I bother? So, yeah, it's understandable. Chris just stood there and let this shit wash over him, and then came to London, the one and only time we've had the Mr. Olympia in this country, I believe it was at Wembley, and won. And won, like, let's not fuck about, he's the deserving winner. Again, it's one of the few times the Olympia's gone overseas, it's happened a couple of times, Uh, that's difficult for some athletes. So you got that flying over. We're not talking about nowadays, guys. And he didn't come over on Concord, so it would have been a slower journey. I mean, we're still talking about 82, so it's not in the ancient past, but it would have still been more difficult than there. There's no meal prep companies. The British gyms, one or two in London, were maybe of an American standard. Most were not. So training here in this country is more difficult. And overcoming all those obstacles, but especially coming overcoming the mental obstacle of the bullshit 80 and a bullshit 81 Olympia, to just stand there, let this shit wash over you, be probably the most dignified person on stage, maybe Tom Platts and a couple of the others are up there, but for most people, they were losing their minds, and go back, talk to Bill Pearl, do your five o'clock in the morning workouts, travel to the UK, sit on a plane for nine hours, and then come here and kick ass. So, we've, I mean, he's always had outstanding calves, but he was just put together right, and bringing that polish the stagecraft that we touched on earlier on. There's the positive thing, guys. There's the things that just go there and don't let this shit bother you. And one of the things Steve touched upon in Mr. America is this idea that sometimes in sports, sometimes in life, you make it so fucking difficult for the judges or the managers at work, for example, or your lecturers at college and university to not give you the top prize, to not give you the best score, to not give you that promotion by being so much fucking better than anybody else that it becomes undeniable. To do that in the face of this bullshit 
and to still come back and still be world class and just come and do your work and fly over and kick ass and take the trophy that you probably should have had one year, if not two years before. That is a plus. That is a thumbs up. And that is a recognition of Chris Dickerson being a deserving 1982 Mr. Olympia winner, Steve. Yeah, and I, I make the argument in the article, he should have been a three-time Mr. Olympia winner. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was an absolute, it's it's a basically a, you know, 80 and 81 were basically a travesty. And that's a stain on Mr. Olympia that will never, ever, ever go away. And we can't let it go away. Because if we do, it's just going to happen again. And something like that will happen again. So in my view, Chris Dickerson was a three-time Mr. Olympia winner. Not, not I just would argue a little bit against that, Steve. I would, only, I would say that's because Chris Dickerson's a great bodybuilder. But for me, I wouldn't have cried myself to sleep, for example, if uh, Tom Platts had won. Uh, only because, if, if especially for his upper, I mean, sorry, his lower body, his upper body was fine. And probably around the 81, 82, he brought his upper body up. So arguably, for me, as a Tom Platts fan, I wouldn't have been unduly bothered had he won. But again, I think the better put together, better stagecraft, better bodybuilder per se, someone who's on stage doing all that kind of stuff, Chris Dickerson, and maybe arguably out of those three athletes again, possibly Frank Zane around that time. Uh, but Frank Zane was overcoming, for example, a medical issue, I think, of the 1980 that basically, and to put it crudely, smashed his penis swimming, diving off the board, landed, to put it crudely, on his cock and gave himself a really bad injury and a god-awful place for a fella and was having to overcome that crap and that medical issue at the same time as getting the condition to come and win but again he was probably like Chris Dickerson in that he wasn't necessarily the biggest bodybuilders alive because he was neither one of them was but both incredibly well put together they knew how to pose they knew how to display they were very confident and comfortable being on stage and for me those three bodybuilders but we're not talking about and we're not talking about Franco. So, yeah, you could make an argument, certainly, for Chris, but then it depends what kind of fan you are. So, for me, 82, no argument whatsoever. 88, you won. I'd have been happy with Frank Zang or Tom Platts or Chris. Any of those three could have, could have won those competitions. And I think that's something that's interesting in the last couple of years, and we've discussed in podcasts, how varied the winners have been. Whereas uh, for the longest time, you've had winners winning for seven years and eight years and six years and so on. And that's probably just amongst four athletes. I think two lots of eight, one lot of six, one lot of four, uh, one lot of seven. Uh, and only one during that time would be Dexter Jackson winning at the one time. Whereas this time, either one of those three could have won at those years and there would have been no complaints. But Arnold, no. Franco, no. But Chris Dickerson certainly could have won three competitions. But in the 1982, no. I say that because he was number two in both. You know, he yeah, but there you go. Steve. So if you take yeah, out so he Arnold, would, he, he wins. If you, you take, take out, out Arnold, yeah. then it's Chris, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And you take out you Colombo, it's Chris. Yeah. Exactly. If they hadn't had my friend Frank or my friend Arnold winning, then the judges are essentially saying Chris should have won it. So there you go. Yeah, there's your one. So his, you know, um, he ended up the next year not competing at Mr. Olympia, and then he came back in '84 and he got 11th place. And then he was at that point he was 45 years old. You know, that was it for him. He came back in 90 to the Arnold class and got eighth place. And then in 94 Masters Olympia, he got fourth place. So 
Yeah, I mean, he had a long career. I mean, starting in 1966, where he, uh, Mr. North America AAU second place, and then 1966, Mr. New York State AAU overall winner, all the way competing into the mid-80s and then coming back in the 90s for two competitions. So his career was incredible. He had, he had an incredible career. And really, had he gone into an entertainment, modeling, singing, even acting, I'm sure he would have had a successful career doing that too. But he chose bodybuilding. And he says, you know, one of these quotes that he talks about, and this explains why he loved bodybuilding so much. He says, he was never into flashy cars or hair, but he was into flashy bodies. So that's the thing. You have to have that built up, you know, inside that, that, uh, that mentality when it comes to bodybuilding, where you want to go and to the beach with no shirt on and have people looking at you and being like, damn, that's, you got guys and girls looking at you. The guys are wishing they looked like you and the girls are wishing they could, you know, be on top of you or have you on top of them. And that's, that's the drive for it. And as Wamster mentioned, he, um, you know, he was homosexual as well. That's another thing he had to overcome. He was openly homosexual. And that's a big, big thing, too, to, uh, to go through. Because in, in the United States, gays weren't even allowed to get married until recently, believe it or not. Some, state, you know, some states had it legalized already. But so, I mean, we, he's really broken barriers across the board. So he passed away um, of heart failure. Um, he donated most of his trophies to a museum. I thought that was interesting. He also spent time as an ESPN commentator on bodybuilding. So that was yes. pretty good too. And as Mobster mentioned earlier, he was a triplet. His two other brothers passed away way before he did. So he outlasted them, even though he bodybuilded. So I think that has a lot to do with, he took his health very, very seriously. And yeah, to I'm be able to live to 82 is very good. Yeah. I'm going to jump in here, Steve, and something that you and I talked about in a pre-show. Come nothing to do with Chris Dickerson, funny enough. We were talking about nutrition and training and whatever, guys. And, you know, the young people of the day and all the usual moaning and bitching that oh, as older guys do. And one of the things that's interesting, and I've touched on this online when I said about getting my daily steps in and, and trying to eat certain kinds of food and whatever else, regardless of the size and the strength or whatever that I am, and Steve doing certain particular things to stay healthy, and you know, whether it's, you know, fiber in your diet and this kind of stuff. Chris comes from that size because he was never a huge, huge bodybuilder. 195 pounds at his peak, as Steve says in the article here, with, versus today's bodybuilders. And of course, the drug, which we're going to get into in a minute, argument come, applies here too. So arguably, it comes, it comes from that section of bodybuilding, specifically the history where health was still important, especially once you stop competing. You're not huge. So let's um, not fuck around, guys. Being 240 pounds is a great stressor on your body than 195 pounds if your Chris is high. That's just a fact. It is harder for your heart and harder for your lungs and harder for your digestive tract to work. So if you were too full, you retire, go down and come in a lean and healthy and still muscular and still shaggable to, to take it from what Steve was just saying, by the lads or ladies, whichever your preference is, uh, because it's healthier. And so the, the coming away from it, you still train, you're still interested in a healthy lifestyle. And Chris seems to have that going for him. And as a good example, as Steve said already, uh, in terms of, I'll give you an example, just from my own background against Steve, the granddad, uh, great granddad, granddad, and my dad all passed away 
when they were around the age of 60. And they would have been average size. In fact, great granddad and granddad would have been relatively small. My dad was six one and a half, close to six two. Uh, but normal frame size, etc., for the age. And all three of them passing away when they're 60. Now I'm 322 motherfucking pounds, 328 pounds this morning at six foot three. So I'm taller, but I'm a lot fucking heavier and a lot fucking bigger. And I'm 57. And trust me, Steve, I'm not planning on dying when I'm 60. So the aspects of what I do do, which are positive from training, and apply here for Chris, is that training, even if it's just cardio and lighter weights when you retire, that you're not smashing the granny out of yourself in the gym, that you come off the crazy dosages if that's your thing now, but Chris won't be, as we're going to get into in a minute, that his nutrition would have been healthy, that being the size that he was at his height was relatively healthy, and that change, making changes when you retire, when you're no longer competitive, still staying lean, still staying muscular, but more than anything, staying healthy in your retirement and outliving by some margin, I believe, his two other triplets is a great indication for us as a positive for us, list, uh, myself and Stephen, for you guys, the listeners, that looking after yourself, training, going to the gym, eating healthily, etc., will mean this is possible for you too. Not 100% a given, I wish I could say that it was, but for the most part, it is the case that you will, in the, as is in this situation, if you're one of three, and you're actually probably doing these things arguably in terms of what to, for example, performance science and drugs, and certainly the higher level of training is incredibly stressful on the body, and yet you live the longest because you overall no drinking, no smoking, or very little drinking, and very little smoking, lots of not, very little, if any, again, recreational drugs, and doing daily cardio, eating healthily, eating the bodybuilding competition type diet, but just in more moderation, not forcing the protein down, and just eating lots of green veggies and fresh fruit and grape fish and lean cuts of meat and doing that and being able to argue, I believe, Stephen, I, I, I would want the listeners to double check this for themselves. But I think he outlived them by a margin of about 20 years. So they were dying in their 60s and he died in his 80s. That is huge. And that is a great indicator of what a positive lifestyle, positive, healthy lifestyle can do guys so pay attention to that as well let's get into his performance enhancing drugs here steve what the guys were doing on that time especially for someone of his size and frame so before lee haney came around a couple years later and basically all hell broke loose in bodybuilding because everybody was chasing lee haney he was an absolute beast you know and that's around the time where i think yeah we had discussed this before when we did a podcast on lee haney he was the Basically, the he opened the floodgates when it came to steroid use because to, to try to keep up with Lee Haney, you had to yeah. run a shitload of steroids. But before this, you had guys like Samir Banut and Chris Dickerson and Arnold. And these guys, they didn't weigh much. You yeah. know, uh, Samir Banut weighed like 190 pounds or 185 pounds. And yeah. then you had Frank Zane. He didn't weigh much. He, ran, he weighed 190, 195 pounds. Same thing with Chris Dickerson, 195 pounds at the most. You know, Franco Colombo, same thing. Arnold then, on stage, I think Arnold on stage was probably as best at around 225. And he's, again, not yeah. quite 60. I think he so embellished a lot of that, too, because he embellishes yes. his high. He was wearing boots. Oh, yeah. And um, he's not as tall 
as people assume. He's, he's definitely not as tall as people assume. Whatever his listed height is, I mean, I can look that up. Whatever it is, you can knock off two, three inches because he's always wearing boots. So, yeah. Yeah. I think he's actually about 5'11", maybe six foot. Well, he was always quoted as being around six foot two, but I think you might be yeah. right, Steve. And again, body weight. For example, I've got Arnold's education of a bodybuilder. I believe the absolute heaviest that was quoted, which probably not right again, was 260, and that would be off-season. The photographs in there that were studio pictures, I think, were taken around 230. I believe he's talked about being 230 on stage, but in reality, I believe his heaviest at around six feet was 225. Now, we have the huge chest and arms that Arnold had. That's just an argument, guys. There's his tall, taller than the other athletes we've just mentioned, weighing less than the modern bodybuilder to be one of the greatest. And it's still arguable, ignoring the 1980 Mr. Olympia, that Arnold is one of the greatest bodybuilders of all time, if only for his overall success and his aspiration and, and the motivation that he's brought. But equally, cited, for example, 73 being one of the greatest bodybuilders. But again, uh, of that time, Steve's quite correct, going from 200 at the most 225 for the taller athletes to 240 for the average height and 250 plus. The I don't know necessarily that we claim that um, Lee took a lot of drugs. It was the guys that wanted to compete with Lee that took a lot of drugs just to try to get yeah. to his level. He didn't even have to, really. He, That's he when the war but and then by Chris, the time he had Dorian Reeds come around, then yeah. everyone was smashing it. Like it was getting ridiculous. Yeah. And then now it's really, really ridiculous. And I think yeah, it's yeah. backed off a hair over the past five years as people are seeing Dor- other Dorian's, Dorian's re- his steroid cycle down, and we've debated his steroid cycle. But again, comp- even Dorian claiming what he's claimed would have been a great responder, but it will still be, as we're about to see, a, a level and a, an two or three times what we're about to talk about in regards to what we think Chris did back in the day. I mean, there's, uh, there's no denying it. Dorian's talks about it. So we're not saying Dorian took five grams of gear a week. He did not, according to Dorian. But equally, if you compare Dorian's cycle to the cycle we're about to discuss, we suggest that we thought Chris was taken back in the day, it's two or three times the amount, if not more than that. And that's with Dorian himself saying that's what he's taken. Let's talk about what Chris took, Steve. So to give me an idea how silly this is, you've got guys in a franchise gym across the UK and across America who use more than this. But look, I mean, that's that's the way it was, guys. I mean, people didn't use much. If he had used what guys use today, I'm sure he would be, he would have been five foot five, five foot six, 260, 270 pounds. But they didn't, yeah. they didn't use that much. So Prima Bowl 100 milligrams per day. That's yeah. been, you know, that's that's what the guys use. I mean, Proviron, 50 milligrams a day. Deca Durable and 300 milligrams a day. They wouldn't use testosterone week, because week, they didn't. A week, yeah. Yeah, yeah, per week. Is, I'm sorry, 300 milligrams a week of Deca Durable. They didn't use testosterone in those days. They didn't have yeah. access to AIs the way we do today. So their next option was Deca because Deca is testosterone with an atom change. And that atom change drops, makes it more mild and makes it way less estrogenic. So you didn't have to worry about water retention. And then the one thing they took that did aromatize into estrogen at, you know, strong amounts was Dianable. So they made sure that they cycle Dianable. Some days they do 10 milligrams, 20 milligrams. Some days they take a handful of it. And then, of course, they would stop it ahead of their competition. And then, you know, they would just roll with a Primo, Proviron, and maybe they dropped the, the Deca dose. And that would be, you know, that would be their cycles ahead of these competitions. It wasn't much at all. 
And now um, I've heard people say chemical warfare. I mean, we're up in the 2020s. It's definitely chemical warfare now. Um, they're going to do what they need to do to uh, keep up with their peers. It's, it's, it's incredible. And in these days, if you had Tremblone, if you had access to Tremblone, it would have changed the game. But Tremblone was not something that guys knew about until later on in the 80s, um, into, the, into the 90s for sure. There are there are stories, of course, Steve. I mean, Steve Michelak, Mr. America or Mr. USA, I can't remember if it was Mr. America, Steve Michelak, uh, doing the intensity or sanity type training. But also that was a time where some guys were tracing the performance enhancing drugs to the greatest degree to try to match people like Chris. So Chris can take the cycle that we suggested and win the Mr. Olympia. I'm taking more devolvents, Chris's right fucking now. And I'm only using 30 milligrams a day this week. So you can say right there, I'm taking more than a fella that won the Mr. Olympia, but I'm not Mr. Olympia. So it's that thing. Steve Michelak was talking about, you know, growth hormone from monkey brains and all that kind of crazy stuff. And, and they would hear stories. This is pre-internet. Again, guys, telephones and letters and, you know, someone's come back from California. And this is what I've heard the guys are doing. And they would up, you know, they would do it. And then they would up the dosage. But again, this is the difference between someone who is, a likely winner because of your genetics, his stage cards and everything else like Chris versus someone like Steve Michelak not being a likely winner of the Mr. Olympia and taking as many drugs as he could lay his hands on at that time. Pete Grominski, Gold Gym fame, talking about 10 grams of some steroids because of, of, an uncle was in a pharmaceutical company and would sell him case, send him cases and probably the highest doses I've ever heard of anybody taking that didn't win the Mr. Olympia, whereas Chris did. So that's a suggestion of genetics. This is a suggestion of aesthetics. One of the things I think that we need to focus on, and we have done a little bit in the podcast, is this ability to act and be a certain particular way on stage. Now, arguably, Arnold is probably one of the best at this particular thing, whether it's cultivation and friendships with the judges, whether it's the mind games and the psyching out that he would get up to with the other athletes. But equally, and as it's surprised to Chris, Arnold and others, the ability to present yourself once you're on stage. And I think Steve touched on it earlier on. The response to, the tuning into of an audience. And we and Steve's quite correct. I've been to some amateur and, and, and middle-ranking competitions. And one of the great examples, I think, was mentioned in the Muscle Magazine back in the day. Essentially, it said, if you take someone that's never been to a bodybuilding competition before to their first bodybuilding competition, they can nearly always pick out the winner because even if they're not a fan of muscles per se, they will recognize talent, they will recognize the genetics, and they will know what the judges are looking for. They'll say, look at that guy. He's the most ripped. He's smiling. He's down at the front. He's the, the other competitors are following him around. You can see the judges are looking at him. He's got great aesthetics. He's got that tiny, those tiny joints. And every single thing I've just mentioned applies to Chris. That Steve talks about whether he's... On, you know, as an opera singer, you're going to, as an opera singer, and anybody that's ever seen this, I've been to Covent Garden, Steve, here in London, where I think you've got a couple of places in America where this happens as well. So you've got these famous cafes, former market, and it's full of cafes and wine bars, but Covent Garden Opera House is just around the corner. So you get aspirational, not quite uh, Covent Garden Opera House level, but very, very good amateur singers, and they will come and sing at the bar typically open air, you're all standing outside in the rear, a glass of wine, 
and you've got this amazing singer. And then if you're very, very lucky, you've got the male on the one side, a soprano, and you've got a female on the other side. And the two of them are going back and forth with an aria and it, it gets the hairs on the back of your neck standing up. So someone like Chris would have had that. Being on stage and having an audience listen to you, especially if you're good at what you do, singing-wise, in the palm of your hand and with the music swelling and the crowd's all gone quiet, no one's talking to their friend or whatever else, they're just tuning into that particular moment. If you have that talent, if you have that skill, which I believe Chris did as an opera singer, because he was highly raked for that particular reason, to be able to hold an audience in the palm of your hand. We've all seen famous pop singers and rock stars that can do this from time to time. 400,000 people go quiet and just tune into what's happening. Bodybuilders, it, it, we can argue if you're outside the sport, it's not the same fucking thing, but it is. If a person who's never been to a bodybuilding competition can recognize that talent, that skill, that athleticism, the aesthetic, just by going, well, that guy's going to win, that woman's going to win her class. And they, they have no knowledge. They've never been to a bodybuilding competition before. Chris was one of those kind of people. The stagecraft, the dignity, letting everybody else do their thing while you did your own thing, ignoring people going up and down on the stage and just standing there. If they want to follow you, and then suddenly you see that the athletes are starting to recognise that you might be the winner. You might be the guy that the judges are looking at. That was the kind of bodybuilder that Chris was. And to do that on what have arguably now almost laughably low dosages, guys, gives you a great indication of how important it is genetically, but to also have that stagecraft that I mentioned, to be able to cultivate to some small degree, because mostly it's innate, but if you can cultivate that illusion of confidence on stage, it's important. If your tan is on point, if you, good example, guys, get your haircut, get your haircut, Drop the glasses. If you have to go on stage half blind, fine. The contacts are even better. If you're very few top bodybuilders, some don't have a beard, so shave. Get guys training beard all year round, and then they shave for a competition. Hair all over the place all year round, shave for a competition. Get your fingernails done, pedicure, manicure. Get it all sorted. Uh, don't come on stage with your briefs all covered in dyed stains and whatever else from backstage glazes and all that kind of stuff. Have multiple pairs of posing briefs so even if you're getting spray tan you've got a pair that can get dirty and then you put on a new pair ready for the competition stuff like that clean feet don't have dirty soles all this kind of stuff and then walking on stage like you've already won presenting yourself to the crowd as if to say look what i fucking got don't bother looking at no one else smiling responding to the crowd looking in their direction walking up and down stage for example posing for the judges and then posing for the crowd. Let the judges who are going to decide whether you're the winner or not see what you got and they walk to the left and the right of stage. This is something that when you look at Chris as a state having stagecraft, he had in spades. That ability to appear calm in a storm, that ability to act superior when you was superior to present what you've got, his attributes, for example, those great calves, that was almost a given. But he had to bring everything else up. You don't win the Mystery Olympic just because you've got great calves. You win the Mystery Olympic because everything's good. You mentioned him earlier on, Samir Bernou, problems with sodium, problems with PD manipulation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when he brought it all together, won sub 200 pounds, wins by being amazing wins by being the best a one-time winner but being the best because he brings it all together but he always also had that stagecraft 
and also looked like he was enjoying himself on stage. And then, like we've already said, guys, and this is for me, for me, to do that when you've had the bullshit of the AAU trying not to let you win the Mr. Olympia, to do that when you're gay, to do that when you've got all that stuff in the 60s to deal with and your background and your upbringing and whatever else, it just tells you so much about Chris Dickerson as a man. I wish, and again, I say this as someone who's an, a, 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 a historian of the game and an affectionado of the history, there isn't really enough out there about Chris. There, there are, I, I would, I don't think I've got magazine here, Steve, with enough interviews, for example. I haven't been able to dig out stuff that I could say, here's a great article where they sat down and really went into it with Chris, because they didn't. And that's a great shame. We didn't get to see him sit down and talk to the camera enough as we would now. You and I would want him on a podcast, Steve. If we could get him on a podcast now, we'd want him on a podcast. If we, he'd be one of those guys and you say, what was it like coming up with that background? What was it like having that going? Did you think he was overcoming? Maybe even, Steve, there's a thing for sometimes with that situation where he kind of probably didn't think too much about those things. He didn't allow them to be problems. He didn't allow them to become burdens. And maybe that was part of what makes him a great bodybuilder and a, a, a worthy of recognition, Steve, because rather than seeing everything as a problem, you just thought, you know, let's carry on with my journey and just let them see how good I am and let them judge me on how good I am, not let the other stuff cloud my background. For example, as you said, I think in some ways, uh, being gay was probably harder towards the end of his time and around the time that he'd won the Mystery Olympia than, than anything else, because there were guys like Serge Nubray getting problems with, and this is around the 73, 74 Mr. Olympia, by appearing in, you know, borderline porn films and other athletes that are around that time. Schwarzenegger doing, pulling his hair out over a uh, posing of him being cut into a gay movie and worrying about ruining his reputation and so on and so forth. So there's a lot of stuff out there that could have, even though gay, being gay or admiring a male physique is a huge part of the homosexual community, always has been, always will be, it was still for the very longest time an issue if you was an openly gay bodybuilder and I want you to win, I think you're the best bodybuilder, but can you represent the sport? This is the argument with Mr. America. And yet here's Chris walking through all of that, all of that going on, all the shenanigans, all the bullshit, all the politics, all the judging things, all the arguments that we can present and still fucking doing his shit and still winning and then outlasting unhealthy siblings and everything else. I mean, thumbs up to the man. He did not get the recognition perhaps in life that he's getting with this podcast now in death, which is almost a shame. I would love to have seen a properly done, sit down, three or four page interview, tell us what it was like, Chris. And we didn't get to see that, which is kind of a shame, I think. What about you? Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't, I, I think there was a really good New York Times article that I, that I read and that helped kind of good bring a lot of the stuff that that I'm 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 out because a lot of people don't know about this guy. No. And um and he is really like if you look at his mobster even when mobster saw the list when I saw the list of the actual oh, first place man. second place first place second place going down the list at competition after competition he was yeah. destroying everybody during the 60s and 70s. In I'm early seeing so many winners. I'm looking at it right now, Steve. I think the lowest, the lowest I can see on this list 
it's fourth places. There's first, there's second. There's a ton of winners. And this is a long list. So many winners. So many. I'm looking at us at about 43 competitions. And I would say very quickly, it's the top end of 20, 25, 26 as winners. And then seconds and two fourths. And I think a couple of thirds. Everything else is winning. Uh, yeah. Masters fourth. A WBBG a fourth. Everything else is first or second. One third I'm looking at. Yeah, that's it. Everything else. There you go. 40-something competitions, guys, and it's without me counting, it could be as many as 30 wins, probably just under 30, 27, 28 wins. That is a fucking shitload. It's right up there. It really, really, really is. And over a long period of time as well, we're talking about from, let me just have a quick look here, guys, 66 to 1994. So what's that, Steve? Uh, 28 years spread? That's uh, yeah, 28 years. Uh, and, and so obviously competing sometimes more than once a year, which is unusual now, unless you're trying to qualify. And a lot of these competitions, we're talking about Grand Prix, Steve. So, for example, I'm looking at the Grand Prix here. Let me look. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven competitions that year, guys, when they were doing the tour. And he won one, two, three, four, five of the seven competitions with two second places. That is a hell of a year, Steve. 1981. And that was the year when Franco fucking won. So that's how good of a bodybuilder he was in 1981, Steve. Seven competitions. He wins five. He plays second and he doesn't win the Miss Olympia. How is that possible? Yeah, it really is a shame. And like I said, it's it's forever going to be a stain on the Mr. Olympia, what happened in 80 and 81. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't and this is why I can't stand, like, in pro sports, I can't stand even, like, to watch the Hall of Fame or the Pro Bowl in the NFL. I can't – or All-Star Game because a lot of times they it's a popularity contest. And you're like, how can they have snubbed this person for this person? Well, it's, it's a popularity contest. And the fact is Arnold was more popular than Chris Dickerson yeah. in 1980, so he won. And in yeah. 81, Franco Colombo coming out of retirement – very popular bodybuilder. He won. Yeah. Yep. And um, that's, that's, that's the way it is. And both of them, you know, looking back, I'm sure both of them regret that. I'm sure if you sat down with Arnold and you asked him about that, he would regret in 1980 winning. And I think that it was more of a situation where it's, I don't want to be embarrassed. But now looking back, I think he's more embarrassed then he would have he would have probably wishes he would have got fifth place at that competition not first place at least that's how i would feel and i know arnold is a good guy i know he would probably feel like that i've actually seen something to exactly what you said steve i think something one of those things as arnold's got older like we all do when we get older we look back and reflect and i think arnold's actually said something to the effect not of not wanting to win but of the wishing it had not happened in that way so, you know, for example, and I've kind of looked at the history of this stuff and seen the Randy Roach and, and the other stories there where they talk about certain judges should have exempted themselves so that if he had one, it wasn't because he had a business arrangement or was friends with such and such a person. Uh, you know, the, the promoter of the competition was a friend of Arnold's, has been for many, many years, a famous Australian, uh, the Tony Doherty, famous uh, Australian promoter. You, so you're putting on the competition and your buddy wins. That's that's not how things are supposed to be. And even if he had been worthy in terms of his physique, 
you should still not have those circumstances. And I think that's what Arnold's kind of hinted at, saying, you know, I, I don't think he's complained necessarily, like I just said, about winning, but the way that he won shouldn't be the way that it was. And you recognise that, looking back, that you've had this great career as a politician, great career as a movie actor, an amazing career as a bodybuilder, and yet people will still bring up the 1980 Mr. Olympia. And you can't want that on your conscience. You can't want that at the back of your mind saying how amazing I am, how successful I've been, how many things I've achieved, and yet people still bring that up. That wouldn't be something that you would want for yourself. But I'll go back to this again. Let me have another look at this, Steve. I'm looking at, I'm trying to remember now. Again, 1981. So Franco Colombo wins that competition as a friend of some of the judges with business friends with the judges. And of course, as Arnold Schwarzer's training partner and best friend in the world. And the Grand Prix is they had tours. And some of the Grand Prix tours around this time and a couple of years later were going around Europe. And typically, I think the European tours, and I believe uh, Roddy, for example, took part of this with Kevin Lerone, Flex Wheeler and a couple of others, was every weekend there was a competition. I believe the Grand Prix tours at the time was a little bit different. So I think it was every few weeks, not every month, a little bit more frequent than that, but not every week either. And I'll read this out again, Steve. So he comes second to Franco in 1981 Olympia and then Night of Champions wins 1981. 1981 Grand Prix World Cup, second. Washington wins. New York wins. New England, second. Louisiana wins. And California wins. Now, that's holding condition, guys. I'm going to say every three weeks. Might have been more frequent, might have been less. I think it averaged uh, every three weeks. Holding, holding conditions, so the lowest place that you take is second. The same year you competed and come second in the Mr. Olympia, you then go on to compete in another one, two, three, four, five, six, seven competitions, never playing lower than second, and keeping your condition on an average across competitions that are taking place every three weeks. So you're winning or place a second, seven competitions over, let's say, 21 weeks. That, without the Mr. Olympia, is an outstanding set of circumstances to be in condition for to maintain the condition for and to place how he placed forget the mr Olympia. in 1981 there's no argument forget what i said about maybe uh, tom platz or frank zane in the eight year 81 let's not fucking do that i don't think tom platz or frank zane did this number of competitions let's put him let's not let's let's clear the table in 1981, Chris Dickerson was the best bodybuilder in the fucking world. 100%. No one else did this number of competitions. No one else placed this high in that number of competitions. No one else was maintaining their condition over that number of weeks and winning or placing second like Chris Dickerson. So in 1981, never mind the fact that he won in 82, Steve. Fuck it. In 81, Chris Dickerson was the best bodybuilder because look at it. Look at the statistics. We can make arguments of Sunday League football, soccer in this country or pro ball in your country and sit down and discuss, you know, who should have won this trophy, who should have won that trophy. It's not a should have, could have, would have. This is what he was doing. The best bodybuilder in 81 was Chris Dickerson. And then to come back and win Olympia, to become the best bodybuilder in the world in 1982. With no argument. Seven competitions with two seconds and five firsts over probably something like 20-odd weeks, Steve. Come on. 
winner, 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 chicken dinner. Done. Yep. Yeah, and it's a shame we lost a really good guy, but he did li live to 82 years old. So yeah. um, it's not like he died young. So really, really um, incredible talent, uh, Chris Dickerson. And, um, yep, we, uh, we hope you guys not, enjoyed not this conversation. I think the younger guys, you don't recognize Chris Dickerson enough. It no. shouldn't take, but sometimes it does, for a fella to die, Christ knows I wouldn't be recognized for my talents and my skills before then. And sometimes with the guys that follow Grip I am, you don't want to wait until you die to be recognized for being amazing. And it is time Chris has had some recognition, but I don't think he got quite the level of recognition that perhaps he deserved. And Steve and I are fixing that today by, by giving a recognition, not just like we did in the previous one as a Mr. Olympia, but as a, a bodybuilder per se, we're showing the love and the recognition that perhaps Steve, uh, Chris should have got. Because, I mean, I'm saying looking at these fucking numbers and, I mean, just looking at the rest, Steve, there's so many first and second. Look, it's going back for those two, three years beforehand. I, I, even I, I mean, as I say, as a fan of the history, did not realise just how many competitions he did and just how many of those he placed so highly in right almost from the get-go, Steve, right all the way back to the 60s. So he deserves a lot more recognition than he gets in the history of the sport, but especially for the things that he overcome and for the times that he was born in, the times that he was born and brought up in, and to get to be where he was. And especially when you're taking part in two of the most argued about competitions in bodybuilding of his time. And even, as you say, to win the Mr. America when they did not want to give that trophy to a black man and still making it happen is, it, you know, it's, all, it's almost worthy of some sort of recognition ceremony. You kind of want this guy to visit if he's still alive now. You say, listen, the shit you had to put up with and you still kicked ass, you done fucking well, sunshine. Have this poxy medal. Let's build a statue to it. You know, he's, he deserves more recognition as a bodybuilder than perhaps he sometimes gets. Episode 176, Chris Dickerson Tribute Show. Hope you guys and gals enjoyed it. Mobster, take us into the disclaimer. As always, please note, we are not doctors and the opinions we've offered on this podcast are hours and hours alone. It's our view and it's based on experience and views on the topic. Our podcasts are for informational purposes and entertainment only. The freedom of speech and the First Amendment.